devoted. It's the name of the sermon series as we finish this morning, looking four weeks through this verse in Acts chapter 2, verse 42, this fourfold description of the first church. Devoted. It's the word for this year for us as a church, kind of setting the vision of what we hope to see the Lord do here at the Grove in 2022. Devoted. It's the, it's the word we hope to see in each of your lives, individually as followers of Jesus, that that word would mark your following of him. You'd be a devoted disciple of Jesus. Your spiritual life would be characterized and described by that word, devoted. What's it mean? Now, we've got some concept of it as we're devoted to all sorts of things. You've got devoted fans um, of football teams, of basketball teams, colleges, NFL teams, what have you. And what does it mean to be a devoted fan? Well, that means that you're there, thick and thin, good and bad, rises and the good times and the bad times. So you're a Florida State fan. It doesn't mean you just were a fan in the 90s. It means you were a fan when you were terrible this past year as well. Both of them. You haven't left. You're not a bandwagon fan. Just jumping on when things are going well. No, you're devoted. You're there through the good times and the bad. At Mississippi State, we've never had good times. So we're only devoted fans. Uh, where I graduated from, we've never, had, we've never owned a bandwagon. We've seen others have them. We've just never had one. Well, so we know what it means to be devoted, and that really is kind of at the heart of what it means here in Acts 2.42. Here, this Greek word in Acts 2.42, the sense of it is the sense to remain, to be steadfast and to endure. Even in good times and bad, there's this sense of devotion that follows that says, no matter what life may throw at me, I'm sticking with this. I'm going to remain. And when life presses you, when the calendar fills up, when the stresses rise, friends, what remains in your life? Maybe a better question might be this. What doesn't remain anymore? What's the thing that kind of gets pushed to the side? The thing that falls off? I'll come back to that whenever things settle down a little bit. I'm too busy. I can't make it to church on Sundays. There's just too much going on. I don't have time to, to read my Bible. Friends, what are you devoted to? What should we be devoted to? Is what we see here in Acts 2.42 is this sense that we should be devoted to the fellowship, prioritizing the collective mission of the church to go and make disciples together, fulfilling the great commission and living as the missionaries that God has called and sent us out on individually, giving us all this message of reconciliation to go then into the world and make disciples. That's a call for all followers of Jesus to be devoted to the breaking of bread, prioritizing the intentional and conscientious community of one another, of Jesus-directed friendships, eating meals together, having people over to our homes, living with a sense of genuine hospitality to deepen the community here as we spur one another on to love and good deeds. And goodness, let me just say as a pastor, as we looked at that a couple weeks ago, breaking the, being devoted to the breaking of bread, I've heard so many stories the last couple weeks of people playing that out, people getting lunch together, having people over for dinner, um, people stepping in, community groups stepping in and generosity when there's need, just story after story. I've never seen a sermon get that quickly applied in the life of a church as have that. And so let me just say, keep doing then what you're doing and being devoted to the breaking of bread. We also see we're supposed to be devoted then to prayer. Acknowledging complete dependence in every spiritual act in our lives, knowing that apart from Jesus, we are unable to produce a single spiritual fruit in our lives. He's the vine, we're the branches. Apart from him, we can do nothing. And so we ask him to enter into the smallest moments of our lives, 
and the greatest cares and anxieties of our lives because he's our father, he cares, and because prayer makes a difference. But fourth, as we look today, we see we are to called, to be call, uh, called to be devoted to the apostles' teaching. What's our commitment then to the teaching of the apostles? To their doctrine, another word then for teaching. To the collection of their teaching in the New Testament and the foundation of their teaching in the Old Testament. That's really our question today is this. What is our devotion then to this book? Are we devoted to this book, to the Bible, to the scriptures, to the B-I-B-L-E? Yes, that is the book for me. What's our devotion to it? But as we look at that, I want to, again, similar to last week, ask three different questions as we walk through and ask that question. So we're called to be uh, devoted to it. I want to ask these three questions because it kind of gives us the mile markers for the day. First, what keeps us from this book? Second, what is this book? And then third, how can you grow in your, what can you do to grow in your devotion of this book? So what keeps us from this book? What is this book? And what can you do to grow in your devotion? Those are kind of the questions we'll be walking through. Uh, So first, if we're to be devoted to it, so many of us feel a distance from it. So what keeps us from devotion to this book? Uh, There's a million things, but I want to kind of just touch on two. I think of the the more common ones. Uh, First being the sense that I feel like I just don't have time. I know I'm supposed to read the Bible, but again, uh, Caleb, it is uh, uh, 1,872 pages long. Where am I going to find the time for that? I have a hard time making it through a whole Facebook post, and you want me to read the Bible. I just don't have the time. Now listen, there are all sorts of stats and whatnot about where, where we spend our time. I won't get into that. I just want to, uh, I think that this uh, quote from John Piper, a pastor in Minneapolis, I think sums it up well. He said, one of the great uses of Twitter and Facebook will be to prove at the last day that prayerlessness, or I would add that reading the Bible, that prayerlessness in reading the Bible was not due to a lack of time. Friends, our screen time apps on our phone tell us the same thing. It tells us where every minute goes and how long we're on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, TikTok, or whatever thing is happening next week. We feel like we don't have time, but that's not because we don't have it. It's because we're giving it to other things. We have the time. We're not spending it this So that excuse is gone. Secondly, I think the other thing that often keeps us from this book is a sense to go, I don't understand it. It's a huge book. It's an ancient book. It's written in three different languages, translated to ours, all sorts of different nations and socioeconomic authors, all carried along by the Holy Spirit. But it's a different context, and there's so much complexity to it. And I just get lost in it, and I just don't understand it. And there's this kind of paralyzing sense of how can I engage in this when I read through it and I get done? I'm like, what in the world does a genealogy in Israel have to do in my life? Well, friends, let me just tell you, there's a number. We live in a time with just a ridiculous amount of resources at our fingertips. Here's a few that are helpful. If you don't have a study Bible, study Bibles are tremendously helpful. Uh, The ESV study Bible is one in particular. It's really helpful. It gives just concise commentary at the bottom. Uh, Be careful not just to read the bottom part. Read the top part. That's the danger of the study Bible. We just read the commentaries about the Bible and stop reading the Bible. So don't do that. But when you get to a part you don't understand, that's where it's helpful. It gives you some insight into uh, different uh, people as they've, scholars have wrestled with this and the conclusion they've come to. So study Bible is great. The internet, again, is outstanding. Sermons, articles, resources. 
The danger of the internet is there's also terrible sermons, articles, and resources out there. So we have to be careful. Don't just type in something, go and read it without seeing who they are, what they believe. Um, and so that, again, can be overwhelming. If you need help, there's, there's a couple great resources out that just kind of have almost everything you can imagine on there. If you have questions about, hey, is this guy good? Is this girl good? What should I read? Uh, come ask us, uh, one, of our, one of the pastors here, and we'd love to point you in the direction of some good resources online. And let me tell you the third thing that God has given us to help us understand this book. He's given us the local church. Because the church didn't always have the internet. The church didn't always have study Bibles. The church didn't always have the Bible even in their own language. But you know what the church always did have? Itself. And God constructed the church in a way to help us be able to understand the scriptures. Here's what God uh, said through Paul to the church in Ephesus in Ephesians 4, verses 11 and 12. So that God himself gave some, so God is giving. He's giving gifts to his church. And here's what God gives his church. He gives some to be apostles and some prophets. Now, those offices have ceased at the end of the first century and no longer continue. They were given as gifts in the early church to help establish um, this new covenant and new work that God was doing. But he doesn't just stop there because he also gives some evangelists and some pastors and teachers that God has given his church pastors and teachers of the word as gifts to his church to be able to do what? What's the purpose of that gift that God has given? It's to do this, to equip the saints for the work of ministry. Now, we sometimes in the professionalization of the church kind of have that backwards, and sometimes staff and pastors can take ministry from the church, give it to the professional Christians, and they'll do everything, and you guys just sit and watch. That is not the church described in the New Testament. If a pastor or staff member is taking ministry from you guys, they're not going to be a pastor or staff member here because that is not what we are called to do. We are called instead to equip the saints, to equip you for this work of ministry, to be able to engage in understanding the scriptures, to go out into the ministry that God has for you, that you feel equipped and called then into this role. We are to encourage and inspire you into ministry as we come alongside you as a fellow member of this church. And so not understanding the scriptures, one of the things that God has given is pastors and teachers to this church to help us then walk through it and understand it together. So we're starting a year-long journey through the book of Exodus next week. My hope is by the end of it, you understand Exodus better. That's part of our hope in it. And so often we feel like we don't have time or we don't understand it. That can, we don't understand it. That can keep us uh, from the scriptures. There are resources that are out there that can help us as we walk alongside it. But I want to move now and ask the question as we look at kind of the nature of this book and ask the question, what is this book? What is it? And to answer that, I first want to look at what it's not. There's a lot of images the Bible gets described as, and I want to make sure that we understand what it is not before we see what it is. And it is not a textbook. It is not just a book that you open up and begin to study. Let me come as a student of theology, a, a studier of God, the knowledge of God, and get all of my precise theological categories in place, all the systematic teaching kind of in a line, and I can spew all the big theological words, and I come and I, I master this book. It feels like a textbook to be studied. Friends, God is not a subject to be studied. He is a person to be known. And when we come to this book trying to master it, we've come in the wrong way. We've got to come not to master it, but for it to master us. We do not stand over it. We fall underneath it. It is God's revelation of himself to us. 
as he's spoken. And we can't understand it on our own. You can't come and just with your mind begin to piece the thing together. Now, this is what we understand in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 10. Paul describes it this way. He said, now God has revealed these things to us by his spirit, since the spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. This is the, the, the doctrinal word for it is the doctrine of illumination, that we need the help of the Spirit of God in order to understand the depths of God. We don't come just to open it up and study it. Before we come to this book, we need to come, make sure that we don't come alone, that we ask God's Spirit there to open our hearts to see the truth of who he is. Would he plant that deep in our hearts? So it's not a textbook. Second, it's not a roadmap. I don't know if you've heard the Bible described this way. It's a roadmap to your life. Trying to figure out what should you do? What's God's will in your life? Let me just open it up and see what's it going to be. Okay, God, what do you want me to do? Okay, um, Jeremiah, Jeremiah compelled to preach. That's definitely not my life. Let me try again. Maybe he'll get it the second time. And we go and try again to see what God wants us to do. Or we come and look for principles or, or wisdom as we play out. I want to figure my life out. God, you tell me where I'm supposed to go. It's a roadmap to my life. This is here, right? It's a lamp to my path, a light into my feet, right? That's Psalms. It's in God's word. So it's a roadmap showing me where to go. Now, in some senses, yes. God has given us his word to help us in our life be able to make decisions about how we're to live. Of course, but we need to understand it is not primarily a roadmap. In fact, it's not primarily about you at all. Rick Warren's book, The Purpose Driven Life, the, I feel like the greatest selling book of goodness all time, it seems like, begins with that truth. Here's the first sentence of the book. It's not about you. And he nails it. So often we come to the Bible and re -re we read ourselves in as the main character of the story. We are David. We are Moses. We are defeating our giants. We are the one that Paul is writing to. We are the main characters of the story. And here, let me find the direction that God has given me as a roadmap to my life. Friends, it's not about you. This book is all about Jesus. All of it, from beginning to end, Genesis 1 to Revelation 22, is all pointing to him. You're certainly included in that story, but goodness gracious, just not as much as we think. It is not primarily a roadmap to our lives. It's not a textbook. It's not a roadmap given to us primarily. And it's third, not an instruction manual. It's not an instruction manual where God just says, okay, here you go. Met with the Israelites, Mount Sinai. Here's the law. Now here's the New Testament, the instructions and the commands that I'm giving to you. Then here's what you're supposed to be. So walk out of here, read the commands, and go try as hard as you can to do all this stuff. It is an instruction manual to our lives. And if we aren't careful, we can begin to view the Bible that way, even if we don't vocalize it that way. We read the Bible, we immediately skip right to the application. What am I supposed to do different in my life? And let me start to try to do that thing. And we focus on the instructions and we skip over the news. The news of the Bible are things that's already happened, been accomplished, and told to us. And that's the most important part of the Bible. Not what you're supposed to do, but what God has already done. And it's, in fact, that news that drives and motivates then what we do. Our obedience is rooted then in what God has already done. And we start there. And goodness, the news in the Bible is so much better than the instruction in the Bible. The Bible is immensely practical, but it's not primarily practical. It's not focused on doing, but on declaring. It's not aimed at your hands, but it is aimed at your hearts. Why? Because Jesus knows how we operate. 
God knows that your obedience is not a problem with what you do. It is a problem with what you love. It's not focused on conforming external habits. It's focused on transforming internal affections. And the glory of this book is not that it tells you what you have left to do, but that in Christ it has all been done. That it really was finished upon that cross and Jesus is now seated because there's no more work to be done. It's in that gospel that we see then the transformation of our hearts to be able to live a transformed life. This book is not an instruction manual for you to impress God. Friends, in Christ, you have no one to impress and you have nothing to prove. You have no one to impress. God isn't sitting in heaven going, okay, let me see how he does with this part of his life. I know he's had a hard time. Let's see what he does. Oh, I messed up again. Classic. Friends, there is nothing to impress with him. In Christ, you are adopted as his child. And all the work that God has demanded from you, a perfect life, all the commands that he has given to you, we can't ever do it perfectly. But this is the gospel, that he knew that while we could never live up to his perfect standard, he then entered into the story and he fulfilled that law perfectly. He, he followed every single command of God and never sinned as Jesus lived a perfect life here and then willingly went to the cross to die in your place because he loves you. And he then takes your sin on himself, all of it, past, present, future, every single one of your failings, every single time that you have rebelled, turned your back against God and said, you know what, God, I've got a better way for my life. Jesus says, you give me that, and I will give you my perfect life. The perfect righteousness of God will then be credited to your account, Paul says in Romans 4. Jesus writes a check with his righteousness, and it gets cashed into your account. So when God sees you, he doesn't see the sum of your past mistakes. He doesn't see your current failures. He doesn't see the future ways that you're going to let him down. He sees the perfect righteousness of his son, and there is nothing left that you can do to impress him. And there is nothing left and no one left that you have to prove anything to because Christ did it all. It's finished. And your sins placed on him and on the cross, he stands in our place and takes our punishment for sin. The wrath of God for our active rebellion against God poured out on God the Son in our place. And there's this exchange that happens that he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. He takes our sin, we take his righteousness, and now we do not have to approach the Bible as a way to live to impress God, but we can go, no, it is finished. The reality of that finished work of Jesus frees you then to obey God. It doesn't mean that we just go and live however we want, that the grace of God frees us to say, well, it doesn't matter, it's all paid for, I'm just gonna go live however I want. Since our, his grace is greater than our sin, should we just go keep on sinning? Paul says in Romans 6, by no means. But it frees us then to obey God, not out of obligation, trying to earn his acceptance, but our obedience then becomes in an act of worship because you've already been accepted. This is the pattern of every New Testament book. You'll see this in the letters, in all the New Testament letters, especially in Paul's. It's so clear. Paul begins his letters focusing on the reality of the gospel of Jesus Christ and what God has done. Then, some point later on, he transitions to how then that affects us in our lives. 
as husbands, as employees, as children, as we fight sin. Romans 12.1, here's the transition to Romans 12.1, just so you can hear how clear Paul is with this. All through 1 through 11, he's just focusing on the glory of God's redemption through the gospel of Jesus Christ. And then he gets to 12.1 and says this, Therefore, brothers and sisters, in view of the mercies of God, he's been writing about for 11 chapters, in view of the mercies of God, I then urge you to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true worship. In view of the mercies of God and the duns of the gospel, it is done, it is finished. In view of the duns of the gospel, then we go and do what God has called us to do. It motivates us. It is then an act of worship, offering our bodies then as living sacrifices. That is the way in which Paul writes. This book is not primarily an instruction manual for us to earn anything. Earning is opposed to the gospel. No, it does have instruction, but that's not primarily what it is. So if it's not a textbook, if it's not a roadmap, it's not an instruction manual, then what is it? This isn't exhaustive, but two things I want us to look at here this morning. What it is, is we see that this book is a weapon. It is a weapon. Paul in Ephesians 6 is writing to the church and describes the armor of God and has all these things, uh, helmets and breastplates and uh, shoes Everything that he describes is defensive, but there's one thing he describes that's offensive in nature. In chapter 6, verse 17, he says, Take then the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. One thing we have to step into this world, to fight against the enemy in this world, everything that comes at us is this book. Friends, it is a weapon. And whenever we neglect this book, we run into the battlefield without a weapon. God has given us other things to protect from all the things that come at us, the flaming arrows of the enemy, of the enemy. but this he has given us to take on the offensive, to fight, to be able to overcome temptation, to fight against sin. Uh, the author of Psalm 119 puts it this way in verse 11. It says, I have treasured your word in my heart so that I might not sin against you. The psalmist knows there's a correlation between a treasuring of God's word and being able to fight sin and temptation. Right? You see this even in Jesus' temptation. When he was taken out to the wilderness early in the Gospels and uh, the devil tempts Jesus, what is Jesus' response in each of those temptations? He quotes the Bible. He's always quoting the Old Testament to fight temptation. Why does Jesus do that? Right? Jesus is, is God in the flesh. Everything that he says is Scripture. He sneezes and it comes out in red letters. That's Jesus. And yet in that moment when he's tempted, what does he do? He does not say new things that would be scripture written down for us. He goes back and quotes the word of God. I think partly as an example to show us this is the weapon we have. Hide it in your heart so that when that temptation comes, you'll know the truth. Friends, you will not recognize the lie unless you know the truth. This is a weapon that God has given us to walk out into the world and to fight the enemy as he comes. But I want to be careful because I feel like sometimes as we look at the word and the power of the word and how God transforms us through his word, we might stop there and think that reading the Bible is primarily about looking more like Jesus. 
being Christ-like, fighting sin, hiding it in our heart. And then it becomes up to us to be disciplined. And we walk out of here, okay, here's my reading plan. Here's what I'm going to do every day. And we walk out of here then burdened and feeling like here's the effort that I need to put into in order to be more Christ-like. But friends, that's not, I don't think, primarily what the Bible is. It certainly is that, a weapon, as we just looked at. We see it everywhere in Scripture. But I want us primarily, when we approach Scripture, to see it not as a weapon, but as a window, primarily, as a window. I think about it this way. There's a movie that Pixar, Disney Pixar, released a couple years ago called Onward. I don't know if you guys have seen it. It's set in, like, this mythical world where there's magical creatures that then get, like, a bunch of technology so they don't rely on magic anymore and follows the story of a young 16-year-old kind of angsty and shy teenager called Ian Lightfoot. The, The movie was released... March 6th of 2020, which may be the worst week ever to release a movie in movie theaters, the week before COVID began. So needless to say, it didn't do well in the theaters and was Pixar's only second flop ever by Pixar, uh, including The Good Dinosaur, which I know some people in this room love, and it's just good. It's a, it's a good dinosaur. It's not great. It's not exceptional. It's a good movie. But Onward didn't live up to those expectations either. As it follows the story, this young 16-year-old Ian And Ian lost his father. His father died whenever he was an infant. So Ian doesn't have any memories of his dad. His older brother was a toddler and has just a couple of them, but he doesn't have any memories. But he does have this tape recording of his dad's voice. He plays over and over again as he sees this video of his dad and hears his voice. And he has worn this thing out. He knows everything his dad's going to say. He knows all the intonations of his voice, the way that he laughs, and in some senses, even knows it so well, acts like he's having a conversation with his dad. And the plot of the movie, the dad then also leaves on his 16th birthday, Ian with a staff and a certain kind of phoenix gym to be able to cast a spell to bring his dad back for one day so he can see him face to face for a day. And the whole movie is about them messing the spell up and trying to get to the end of the day and finishing the spell. What's going to happen? I don't know. You'll have to rent it today. I'm not going to spoil it. Um, but here's the point. That Ian, even though his dad, Wilden, wasn't next to him, Ian knew his dad's voice. He'd memorized his father's words. And this is what his son had in order to know his dad. He didn't have anything else. It was a window for him to have a relationship with his father. And hopefully, in the movie, he was going to be able to see him one day, for just one day. And friends, that is primarily, I think, what we hold in our hands when we pick up this book is a window. A window to hear the father's voice a window to know his words and peek into his heart, to see what makes him laugh, to see what makes him cry, to see what makes him celebrate, to hold on to his promises and to look forward to one day seeing him face to face. And friends, we don't need a spell and we, don't, we won't just have a single day. We will have the rest of eternity as we see him and we will then be in his presence for eternity with the one who created you. And until we get there, he has given us his spirit to be near to him and he's given us his book to know him. It's a window into a relationship with him. The creator of it all, the designer of universes, the sovereign king has given you and all access pass into his heart and into his mind. He has stooped low to speak to us in a way that we can understand. You imagine a father leaning down and talking to his toddler who asks a question that you know is going to be way too complicated to explain. But the parent words it in a way that the child can understand. Friend, that's what God has done through his word. Speaking to us in a way that we can understand. 
He's spoken and revealed himself to us. We should never take that for granted, and we should never lose sight of what this book is, a window into the heart of God. So that no matter how many times you've turned from him, no matter how many times you've neglected his grace towards you, we can know that he is still pursuing you, still talking to you, and still befriending you with this book. It's a weapon, friends, it's also a window. And so if this is what this book is, and we're called then to be devoted to it, and so many of us feel this distance from it, what can you then do to grow in your devotion? To say that whenever life comes at you, this book will remain. I will stay steadfast in it. I will remain rooted in it. I will endure and continue in it. Other things can fall, but my relationship to God through his word will not fall off. How can you grow in your devotion? Well, four things uh, we'll go through here at the end. and will be immensely practical. First thing you can do is read. Read it. Just go home, open it up, and read. Read just one verse for the week. Read the whole book if you would like. Um, it can be hard, I know, to walk out and go, where do I start? What do I do? And so we've got a reading plan that we would love to give you. It, it breaks this book up into 18 months. So that in the course of 18 months, you'll read the, from the beginning to the end. lays it out chronologically as well. So you'll kind of see when some of the Psalms were written or in one of the other books, it puts those next to each other. I found that to be helpful. Um, and so it's a reading plan that's in a little field guide that we have uh, for discipleship. And if you want a reading plan, you can just walk out. We've got them at our connect table in the lobby. Just go and ask for one of the field guides, and you'll see there's a, a number of things in there. But there in the middle, you'll see a reading plan. It's five days a week, so two days you have off to be able to catch up. Um, spread out over 18 months, again, through chronologically. The other thing I find to be helpful is that so many reading plans start January 1st. And like, if you miss four days, you're like, I've, like, I can't ever catch up. I'm done. I made it to numbers. And I'm like, ah, that's uh, pretty much it. Just skip to Philemon, feel better about myself, and then that's it. <laughs> well, what we did here is it doesn't have any dates attached to it. It just says week one, day one. Week two, day two. It kind of goes all the way then through uh, 18 months. And so the hope is that even if, say, for two weeks it kind of falls off, if you go and re-engage, you can pick right back up where you were and not feel the guilt of like, oh, but it's March, and my reading plan is supposed to be for April. Just try to remove that entirely. There is nothing in the Bible that says to be a good Christian, you have to read it once in a year. Nothing. So don't feel the guilt of a failed reading plan. Just be devoted to his word. If a reading plan is helpful, we have one for you. If not, just make sure you stay devoted to it. And it's another way that I would say very practically you can do this. If you go, man, I don't know if I can step in and do a reading plan for 18 months. Look, here's another thing that I would say. Is the upcoming sermon for the next week, just take that text and read it the week before. Read it every day. So next week will be in Exodus 1 through chapter 2, verse 10. Just read those verses all this week. Read it once, read it seven days. Begin to ask questions, begin to see what's there. You'll find not only as you give yourself to God's word, when you walk into a Sunday service prepared like that, I promise there'll be so much more that God will do through this service if you walk in having already read and known his word. And so we send these emails out every week called Looking to Sunday um, that has our playlist coming up for the songs we're gonna sing. So you can listen to the songs as well if you're unfamiliar with our music. You can listen to those songs on Spotify. It also has the passage coming up for that week for you to be able to look to and prepare yourself. And so if going through an 18-month reading plan sounds overwhelming, then friends, just take the upcoming sermon and read it that week. Again, you've got nothing in here that says you've got to read it cover to cover. We just want you and us as a church to be devoted then to his word, to read it, to read it both with shovels and to read it with rakes. 
making sure as we're skimming over it with rakes, we're also digging down deep with shovels also. Listen, maybe you're here and you're not a Christian and you're like, how can these people believe in this book? How can they really believe that God's spoken to them through this book? And listen, that's a legitimate question. And it's one we've got to be able to answer. Honestly, it may be the most important question that we have to answer as Christians. What do we think about this book? But if you're here and you're not sure about faith or you're not a Christian, and you'd love to have a conversation about why we go all in with this book, one of our pastors would love to just sit down and talk to you. And we'll go through this. It's a little book, it's a few, uh, 90 pages, called The Bible, Can We Trust It? We'd love to read it with you and answer questions that you may have. Uh, we say it all the time around here, but we hope this is a church where you can explore faith and have real questions. Because we don't think God's called us to just bury our heads in the sand. And so if you have questions about the reliability of this book, come talk to me and I'll get you connected with me or one of our other pastors and we'll walk through this book with you. And why we are going all in then, understanding this is God's word. But how can you grow in your devotion? First, you can read. Second, you can meet. You can meet. Here's what I mean by that. So often we approach the scriptures as an individual assignment. Now, personalized, this is me, this is my reading plan, I'm engaging with it, me and God, and there is that. But let me tell you, one of the things that God has given us to help us in our walk is each other. And so to find a handful, two, three, four other people saying, let's read through it together. Let's go through the same plan. Let's meet together and talk about questions we're having. And then what you'll find is that God speaks to them in a way something you didn't even see. And it multiplies what God's doing in your life. It also will help us whenever we start to say crazy things, they can go, hey, that's crazy. Stop, stop it. God's given us community to be able to do that. And so we've designed, we have here what we call discipleship groups or D groups to be able to do just that, to get three to five people of the same gender together meeting every week, going through that 18-month reading plan. So what we encourage people to do is find two, three, or four friends of yours and say, hey, would you want to do this for 18 months? Commit to go through this for 18 months. And if you do that or are interested or want to hear more information about our D groups, you can, on your Connect card, you can put on there, there's a little box that says D groups. If not, you can just on the bottom check other and click and check D group. And we'll get in touch with you. Garrett Wood will get in touch with you who oversees our D groups and walk with you through what that looks like, how to get it set up, and we'll get one of those field guides into your hands as well. So you can walk through it together as we not just read, but we also meet. Third thing you can do to grow in your devotion to God's word is to gather. The author of Hebrews puts it this way, don't neglect to gather together as is the habit of some. Continue to spur one another on to love and good deeds all the more as you see the day approaching. There is a tendency we have to neglect the gathering to neglect to gather together. And friends, when we come here, my hope is as you come to these services that God will use his word in your life. Again, as we start through the book of Exodus, I hope by the end of it, you understand Exodus more. I hope as you get done with the service, you will find our, one of our goals is to infuse as much of the Bible into our service as we can. A call to worship from God's word, inviting us to hear from him and worship him. Assurance of forgiveness from God's mouth himself, telling us that we can rest assured in the forgiveness that he's offered us through Jesus. Walking primarily verse by verse, chapter by chapter through books of the Bible in our preaching schedule, and then closing with a benediction from 2 Corinthians 13 from God's word. We want to infuse as much of God's word into these services as we can so that my hope is you come and don't neglect to gather together and you come faithfully to the gathering here of God's church that at the end of it, you will love and know his word more. So what can you do to grow in your devotion? Gather. And fourth, what can you do to grow in your devo devotion? Join. Join. To read, meet, gather, and join. 
And here's what I mean by that. As we looked at the year and saw kind of this vision in Acts 2.42, wanting to, as a church, be devoted to these four things, especially as we saw the devotion to the apostles' teaching, we asked ourselves, what's something we can do to, again, help foster this in our church? And so to do that, we've uh, designed and going to be launching uh, men's and women's Bible studies that will be starting February 20th, so in two weeks. It'll be on Sunday evenings at 4.30. 4.30 is the evening, right? Afternoon, evening, midday, I don't know, 4.30. There it is. Sundays at 4.30 p.m., uh, back here for eight weeks. And we're going to be going then through a Bible study through the first half of the book of Hebrews. Then we'll take a break over the summer and come back for eight weeks in the fall, go through the second half of the book of Hebrews. So the hope is as we study Exodus in the morning and then Hebrews at night, we'll see the way in which all of God's word is connected. And part of my hope, honestly, is if you jump in and join those Bible studies, you will leave with a greater love and appreciation at the beauty and the connectedness of God's word as we see Exodus and Hebrews together, uh, working together. And the hope isn't just these Bible studies, the way that we've structured them is similar to a ministry called BSF, Bible Study Fellowship. The hope is not just that you come, sit down, and hear another teaching, but the hope isn't that we just teach you the Bible, but that we teach you how to teach yourself the Bible. Right? We don't wanna teach, give someone a fish, feed them for a day, teach them how to fish, you feed them for a lifetime. We wanna teach you how to fish, that's the hope is then you come, have questions for you. So the first week, you're looking at Hebrews 1, and you're reading just a few verses every day. There's questions attached to it. You're asking questions, wrestling with what the author's saying all throughout the week. Then when you come on Sunday evening, you sit down at a small group with either men, all men or all women. We'll kind of break it up for those small groups by gender. Sit down with a group of five, six, seven, eight other men or women, and you work through those questions. Again, seeing what, what are the things that you see uh, what are questions that you have? What are things that God's shown you? And at the end of that discussion, then somebody will come up and do a large group teaching. That's at the end, kind of quote unquote icing on the cake. It's not the substance of it. Substance of this group is that we then as a church begin to get into God's word ourselves, beginning to see that uh, you don't need a teacher because God's Holy Spirit who wrote the book dwells in you. And there are gifts that God's given through teachers. But friends, you've got the author indwelling in you if you know and trust and to follow Jesus. This book is not too large for you. You can do it. And that's part of what we hope with these Bible studies is those will be starting February 20th. Um, child care will be provided up through fifth grade. We're also gonna have booklets we're gonna print out. So we need to get an idea of how many people are coming so we can have the right amount of child care and books. So you can register in person at the Connect table after the service or on your bulletin, I don't have one, but on your bulletin on the back, there's that QR code. You can just scan that on your phone. We'll take you right to that form and you can sign up for that. Again, eight weeks here, starting February 20th, leading up to April 10th, as we walk through the first half of the book of Hebrews. Our hope is that that helps us as a church and individually to grow in our devotion of God's word. The whole point of why we're doing it. This verse, Acts 2.42, has helped give us kind of a sense of what we hope to start and see happen here at the church this year. This is the biggest thing that we'll be starting this year is these men's and women's Bible studies. So what can you do to grow in your devotion? Read, meet, gather, and join. Friends, my prayer for myself and for us as a church is that we would be devoted to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, to prayer, to the apostles' teaching, that we would remain in those things. Even as life demands, we give them up. Our distractions attempt to pull our gaze away or the enemy tempts us to leave them entirely. Know that we would remain devoted, steadfast 
enduring and remaining, pursuing collectively the mission that God has given us to go and make disciples. And not doing it alone, but intentionally developing Christian community to walk alongside with. Giving ourselves to prayer, knowing that we can't do any of it on our own. And deepening our discipleship by increasing our biblical literacy and devoting ourselves to this book. Simply put, our hope for this year, our vision for this year, is that we want to live for his mission. We want to live with his people. We want to ask for his help. And we want to know his word. Our devotion is not about our efforts. Friends, it's about our God, to know him and to live for him. So what will you do this year? What will 20 and 22 look like for you? Will you continue to let life happen to you as your spiritual life takes a back seat and it kind of ebbs and flows with how crazy your life and busyness and stress of your calendar is? Or will you make a change this year? Will you continue to be distracted or by the grace of God and the help of his spirit, will you be devoted? May it be true for all of us. Let's pray. God, we again thank you that you have spoken. God, help us to see this book and treasure it as the incredible gift that it is. As God, yourself, revealing yourself to us. That we know that you're gentle and lowly at heart because you've told us that we know the prodigal has a seat at the table when he gets home because you've told us, that we know that you are faithful to every single one of your promises because you've told us, and that we know that there is a hope in heaven that awaits us, that is unshakable and that cannot be altered because you've told us. Lord, would you help us hold on to these great and precious promises? Lord, would you help us be devoted to this book and God, as the people describe John Bunyan, whenever you prick us, God, would we bleed Bible? God, we'd be devoted to it. Would you help us, God, to be just that? We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.